0: Today, uh, you know, this is kind of like the beginning of fall. Uh, you know, like on the calendar, it's not, but kids are back in school, uh, football's back on television. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Pastor Michael's back from sabbatical. Like, you know, everything's coming together. And so we're launching a new series today, and we're going to be in the book of Philemon. It's a New Testament letter. We're going to be here for three weeks. And I just want to set this up for a moment because uh, Philemon is actually, you may not be familiar with it. I wouldn't be surprised if there are many gathered here, both online and, and, uh, and on campus, who have never actually studied this book because it's kind of an inconspicuous letter. It's been overlooked, and I would say it's been underappreciated by the church throughout church history. Um, it's a really short book. It, it, doesn't even have a, it doesn't even have chapters. It just has 25 verses. And, and yet it's really powerful. I think one of the reasons it's been overlooked is it doesn't add a lot of new theology, like where a lot of Paul's letters add theological complexity and understanding. This is a book that's primarily about personal application. And it's, a very, it's, it's actually a very intimate book in the sense of it's very personal. As, even as we read it today, you're gonna hear language that's very um, friendly, very family-oriented. It's, very, it's a very warm letter. The language is of brothers and sisters and and lots of heart language. So we're gonna be in it for three weeks, and today what we're doing is we're kind of getting the foundation. We'll do a little bit of application today, but we're getting the foundation of what's happening in the letter, and we're gonna try and kind of wrap our minds and hearts around it. And and then over the following two weeks, we're gonna do more application out of it. And so I wanna encourage you, if you're here today, don't make this a standalone Sunday. I know there's a, a trend within our world for people to be pretty sporadic in their church participation, and that, that will cost you in terms of what, all that God has for you, but it also costs us. This letter is actually a letter to be applied by the church together, and, and I think God's got a lot for us. I'm, I'm, I've been anticipating this series for quite a while now. And I'm excited about what God has for us in all three weeks. So um, I encourage you to, if you're able to be on campus for all three weeks, be on campus. If, if there's a week where you're not in town or something like that, uh, join us online and together we'll, we'll grow through this book. So I titled today's message in, in the series, I titled it Faith Made More Effective and we'll circle back to that title when we get to verse six. So we're going to dive in to verse one. What we're going to do is we're just going to kind of walk through the text line by line today and talk about what's happening, and and then we'll do a little bit of application, because we never want to study just for the purpose of study. It's not just about our heads. It's about our hearts and about the degree to which we're becoming more like Jesus. So uh, let's start off in Philemon verse one. I'm going to be reading primarily out of the ESV, so I'll put it up on screen. If you're following along, along in your Bible or in your app, um, you can put it in ESV if you have that, or, or I'll put it up here. So Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our, our beloved fellow worker, and to Thea, our sister, to Archippus, the, our fellow soldier, And the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's just start with Aaron, break that down a little bit. First of all, where's Paul? He doesn't name his location. Sometimes it's clear where he's writing from. This time he tells us that he's writing as a prisoner, which isn't entirely helpful because Paul had multiple imprisonments in multiple places throughout his ministry life, uh, spanning about three decades. But what we know is we get into this text and we see his age, we see some of the things that have already happened in his ministry, we can pin this down to, to pretty, pretty certainly this is, this is his imprisonment in Rome, which happened at the very end of his life. So you can read about that at the very end of the book of Acts. Uh, Acts ends, it, it kind of has an abrupt ending where we don't know what actually happens with Paul. He's waiting in prison. He's waiting for a trial. But here's what we know about his imprisonment that, that happened there in Acts. is that he was, he was there for multiple years in Rome, but he was under house arrest. So it's not like incarceration like we might think of it today in our world. Uh, he was under house arrest, so he, had, he, he couldn't leave. He was certainly a prisoner, but he had a little more freedoms than what we might think. In other words, he had visitors could come and go. And he could continue to proclaim the gospel verbally to those who came And he continued to write the gospel and send it out in letters. So some of the letters that we have in the New Testament were written from Paul's Roman imprisonment. And and it's one of those things where you see, it's actually a theme that we're going to see again in this book. God can strike a straight blow with a crooked stick. Would would Paul ever want to be incarcerated? And and here's this guy who's gone on missionary journeys and spent his adult life, you know, traveling and, and taking the gospel to new places. And now he's stuck but because he was stuck, he started writing. And we have the benefit of that, like thousands of years later. So that's what's happening. Um, the letter that we know as Philemon was written during this time, it was actually a companion letter. He wrote two letters at the same time to the same general place. He wrote the, the, the letter we know as Colossians. So that's a little more well-known. You may have favorite passages from Colossians maybe the prayer that he prayed or or some of the theology that's there that was written at the same time and sent together they were a companion letter but here's the difference here's why there was two letters Colossians was a letter that was written to it's addressed to all the saints or the Jesus followers that, that lived in this city of Colossae all the saints Well, the church at that point, for the first maybe three centuries of the church, the church didn't have buildings. The church basically met in homes of uh, members of the church that were large enough to gather people in. And so the church in Colossae was a collection of house churches. And the letter of Colossians was sent as a circular letter that would be read first to one house church, and then to the next house church, and then to the next one, and the next one, until it circulated all through. And then they would probably just keep it and keep passing it around so they could keep delving into it. When we get to Philemon, it was written to one house church. We see here it's addressed to, to Philemon specifically and Ophia, is likely his wife, and Archippus Archippus might be his son or there may be some other ideas about who he could be. But it's written to one church and here's the thing. It's a very it's a it's a private letter. Unlike Colossians it's written to an individual. But although it's 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 personal it's, it's not private in the sense that no one else would hear it. I underline this part to the church in your house because I want us to, to, to realize that this, this faith community that he's writing to, they're all going to hear this letter read to Philemon. They're going to hear it together. They're going to see how it plays out. And so in a sense, it is, in fact, public. So what do we know about Philemon? Uh, he's uh, affluent. as a, Christ, he's a He's a Christian, living in Colossae. He's affluent in that he has a house big enough that the church, yeah, there's a house church meeting there in his home. Uh, he, we also find out later in the letter that he's wealthy enough that he has household uh, uh, bond servants or slaves, actually. And so that indicates that he's got a, a larger household and some some affluence. Uh, again, if he is his wife, we don't know Philemon's role in the church, Um he might be the, the spiritual leader of the church, what we might call the pastor, uh, or it may just be that he provides the space that like he's the host or the patron of the church, and someone else leads it, in which case it might be Archippus that's addressed here in this opening part. But um, that's what's going on. So Paul's in Rome. Uh, Philemon's in Colossae, so let me put up a map and give you a little bit of context for this. So here's where this is. Uh, Paul's in Rome, which is in the northwest corner, the upper left corner of your map there, and Philemon is in Colossae, which is kind of dead center, along with Ephesus, and and so that's a 1,300 mile journey. That's 1,300 miles separating them. So we have to kind of rethink and reframe what it means to send a letter to someone, because what Paul can't do while he's incarcerated is just kind of thumb out a quick email to Philemon and hit send, instantaneous. He can't even write a, a letter and drop it in the post box and have it arrive two to three days later. This letter is actually going to be carried over a period of months, some 1,300 miles across the Mediterranean Sea by a messenger who is actually functioning as an ambassador for Paul. So when he arrives, he's, he's arriving to say, hey, Paul sends his greetings. He can't come himself. He's incarcerated. But but I bring greetings from Paul and and the following message. And then he's going to read the message to the church. So um, Pastor Mike, he he compared it this week in our, we have daily devotions that Pastor Mike writes for us that prep us for the Sunday we're going to be uh, coming into. So I would encourage you, if you don't follow Mike's devotions, you can find those on our website or on our app. Uh, you can read them and have them emailed to you, or you can listen to them as a podcast if that's your learning style. Um, but I encourage you to do that because this, it helps us to be applying Scripture not just on Sundays but throughout the week. And he does a phenomenal job. But he compared, he compared uh, the arrival of this letter to like a singing telegram. Because, you know, like somebody knocks on the door, and you open the door, and there's a kind of a performance. That's a little bit what this would have been like because this letter would have been read by, and we're going to see that it's a guy named Tychicus. So um, let me tell you a little briefly about the origin of the church in Colossae. This is important. Uh, In Acts 19, which is during Paul's third missionary journey, we read about this time where Paul, can we put the map back up for a second? Paul landed in Ephesus. And as you look at that map, what you see about Ephesus, it's right on the coast And it's a perfect spot that was kind of a crossroads for traffic going east-west or north-south. And so it's this highly trafficked area where everybody in Asia Minor traveled through there at some point. And so Paul, instead of continuing to travel throughout Asia Minor, he basically set up camp for almost three years in Ephesus and just preached the gospel from there. And what Luke tells us in Acts 19, he says, during that time, all of Asia heard the gospel. And so this is when the Colossian church was planted. This is when Philemon became a Christian. And here's why that's important. You know, many of us grew up in what has been called a, a Christian nation. We'll put that in quotes because we're, we're not really that Christian, are we? <laughs> but, but there's an influence of the gospel. Even growing up in the U.S., there's, there's been an influence of the gospel in, the, in some of our values, the way we uh, see life, our worldview. The people in Colossae did not grow up with that the gospel just reached them somewhere between five and ten years ago. So the church is a pretty new church, anywhere from five to ten years old. Philemon, as a Christian, he's been a a follower of Jesus for somewhere between five and ten years. And the worldview that he was shaped by is the Greco-Roman worldview. He wasn't shaped by a Christian ethic or or a Christian worldview. So that's going to be really important as we get into the book. So... um, you might think about how long you've been a follower of Jesus and what things you continue to grow in or, or hopefully grow in. Um, we'll, we'll look at that as we get into it. So Paul says this. We're going to move on to verse four. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. Here's where I got the title for this morning. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is for us in the, that is in us for the sake of Christ. Okay, Paul does two things with this opening part. He, he provides some encouragement and some prayer. First of all, he talks about uh, what the church is doing well. Sometimes we talk about specific uh, spiritual families as, as like one corner of God's pasture. And so he's like saying, here's some things that you do really well in your corner of the pasture. And he says, first of all, you have this vertical relationship with Jesus that is rich in love and in faith. You, you love Jesus really well. There's this gnat flying around me. In the name of Jesus. Uh, there's things that, that they do really well. They love Jesus and he says, you also have this horizontal thing that you do really well in your human relationships, and that's that you love other, other Christians really well, other followers of Jesus. I find it interesting. He doesn't, he doesn't rebuke them for not loving other people well, but he also doesn't commend them for, for loving their whole community. And here's the thing. Every, every church, every corner of the pasture, every spiritual family has its strengths and has its its deficits, the things that's not as good at. Sometimes they're blind spots. I think if, if Paul was writing to this church, I think about what we just experienced with Surf Fest, and he would say, I'm so thankful when I hear about you because I, I hear about how you worship Jesus in spirit and truth, and, and you love Jesus, and I hear how you love your community, how you serve your community through your, your food pantry and your medical clinic and your garden and you're feeding God's children in the park, and, and when you do Surf Fest, you love your community really well but there might be things that he would say that there's some things for us to grow in. Fully believe that, right? So what he says to them is he says, you love Jesus really well, and you love other churches, other Christians really well. So we're going to see they had a reputation for hospitality, for welcoming and caring for other followers of Jesus. But here's what Paul does. He first encourages them, and then he says a prayer. He says, I'm praying that that your faith will become more effective as they realize more ways in which their faith in Christ can be expressed. In other words, he's saying, you're doing really well, and there's more for you. I'm praying that you don't plateau and just kind of coast now that you've grown in as much as Christ-likeness as you've attained over the last five years. Here's the thing. We never fully grow into the image of Christ this side of eternity. The way that that each one of us individually and the way that we together as a church, we never fully mature into the image of Christ this side of eternity. And so Paul says, I hope you keep growing. I hope you realize when you discover blind spots in, in places where you've not yet applied the gospel, when you make mistakes and you have to go back and repent for it, I pray that your faith becomes more effective as you realize the full knowledge of every good thing we might do. In other words, you're doing great and there's still more for you. Can we just pause there for a second? This, this is why we gather. We don't just gather for information. We don't just gather to study scripture or to, to worship. We gather for transformation to, to say, God, would you show us ourselves and the things that you want to do in us and the things you want to do through us? And so can we, I just want to pause there and say, can we pray? I'll give you a moment to pray silently but i want i want to give you the opportunity to posture your heart before jesus and say jesus if you have something you want to speak to me today or this week or this season and maybe it's a blind spot or a place that you want to bring conviction where i've not yet applied the gospel to my life that if you speak i will act on that so we say come holy spirit Holy Spirit. You tell us in Ezekiel that that your spirit poured out on our hearts will. Help us to set aside our idolatry, will turn hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. Would you do that again today? Would you soften our hearts for the application of the gospel that you want to uh, invite us into today? Would you awaken our hearts and open our eyes to to places where we've been blind? And would you give us hearts that long for repentance, that long to walk in, in purity before you, that long to walk in reconciliation with you and with other people? Holy Spirit, if you speak today, we will listen. Where you lead us, we will follow. And we ask that you would give us the empowering grace to do that today. Amen. All right, verse 7. Paul goes on to say, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother. Notice that affectionate language. I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. I bolded this statement, hearts have been refreshed by you. Pay attention to that because he's going to circle back to that later on in these verses. So hearts of the saints have been refreshed. Again, that he's just kind of repeating what he said earlier about you do really well at loving all the saints. So that's how Paul begins the letter. He says uh, it's, it's affectionate, it's affirming, uh, it's faith-filled. And that brings him to the reason that he's writing. He actually has an ask of Philemon that He's making a Philemon that the whole church there is going to hear. Verse eight. Accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. This word appeal and this contrast between appeal and command, it's very important. See, Paul says that he's not choosing to leverage his authority. What he's not doing, so he writes and he says, I'm writing as an old man, as a prisoner, and as a friend in love. I'm writing to appeal to you. What he's not saying is, uh, I, Paul, the apostle, who planted the churches throughout Asia Minor, who in fact preached to you and saved you, and as the reason you have eternal salvation. He's not leveraging any of that. He could, but he says, I don't want to do this that way. The question is why? This has been one of the reasons that people have have questioned this letter. They said, why did Paul do things the way he did? Paul basically says, I'm appealing to you in love. He says, I have an ask of you and you have a choice in this. The difference between command and appeal, it's it's the difference between what is efficient and what is effective. See, if Paul went for what is efficient, he could simply write and say, I'm about to make an ask of you and I'm saying this as an apostle. And as the founder of all of the churches, you, uh, this is what you must do. And if he did that, he would probably get the behavior that he's looking for, the, the result that he's looking for, the external uh, behavior. But it might not happen through heart change. In fact, what might happen if he demands it is that Philemon might obey it, but do it through gritted teeth. And what might happen is his heart may actually become more hard and calcified rather than more soft and tender so Paul says, I don't want to do it that way. Instead, I want to make an appeal because I want to go after your heart. And what Paul's hoping is that by going after Philemon's heart, this won't just affect the situation he's about to introduce, but not only will that situation be affected, but it will ripple out to other relationships in Philemon's life and to other relationships in those within that household church and maybe outside of that church to the other churches in Colossae. There's the potential for ripple if there's actual heart change. Legislation doesn't change hearts. It can affect behavior, but only through fear, not through love. So Paul says, I'm appealing in love. Verse 10. So I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you. I'm sending my very heart. Paul finally gets to the point. He's met someone during his imprisonment 1,300 miles away in Rome who is a, uh, an acquaintance of Philemon as well. They, they both know him. His man Onesimus. And as we're going to see in a moment, Onesimus is a runaway slave or, or household servant who belonged to Philemon. He's currently living as a fugitive in Rome. In Paul's figurative language, he says, I've become his father during my imprisonment. Clearly, that doesn't mean that he's sired him in his old age. He's using figurative language to describe a spiritual relationship that's taken place. And he's saying, hey, Philemon, your runaway slave Onesimus has now become a follower of Jesus, which means he wasn't when he lived back in Colossae. It's one of the reasons I question how, the church did really well at loving other Christians. Did they love their household servants? Because this guy ended up going to Rome <laughs> in order to be saved. So, so Paul says he's, he's been born again and I've become his father in my imprisonment. This is the language that would be used to describe the relationship between a a spiritual mentor and a mentee or a discipler and a disciple. He's been discipling Onesimus while he's in prison. So Paul's been instrumental in his faith, but now he's sending him back to Colossae. And he he says, I've become his father. Um, That means Onesimus is traveling with the letter that describes what's happened He's helping carry it. He's, walk, he's traveling this 1,300-mile journey with a guy named Tychicus, who is a co-worker of Paul's. Tychicus is going to arrive as an ambassador. And again, in our devotions this week, Pastor Mike, um, he kind of imagined what this like, might play out. Because we, we only have one side of the story here. We're kind of like doing some detective work here. But you imagine what it's like when Tychicus arrives, and he knocks at Philemon's house, and he says, I bring greetings from, from the Apostle Paul. And they're like, oh, wonderful. Well, how is he? Well, he's imprisoned in Rome. Well, it's devastating. Well, me, but I bring greetings, and, and, but it's to you and it's also to the church that meets in your home. So as soon as the church is gathered together, I'll, I'll bring the news. And so they gather the church together, the household churches together. They're, they're waiting with bated breath to hear from Paul. And meanwhile, Onesimus is kind of lurking in the shadows, Waiting to be reintroduced. Because here's the reality. In the Greco-Roman world, a runaway slave was subject to severe punishment. And so this is not a small thing for this is a this journey he's making is a journey of repentance for him to come back. Paul says a couple things in introducing him. He says that he was useless, now he's useful. That's a word play on his name. If you look at the footnote in your Bible, it'll say the word the name Onesimus actually means useful. And Paul says, yeah. He really wasn't that helpful to you. Maybe he's saying, especially when he ran away, or maybe it characterized his work in general, but he says now he's really useful. And Paul calls him his heart. Again, there's a lot of heart language in this letter. Paul Paul says, uh, remember what he said earlier? He said, you do really well at refreshing the hearts of the saints. And now he says, and I'm sending you my heart. And the Greek word there is the word for like your guts. He's like, he's saying, it's tearing me apart to send him. I don't want to send, I don't want to be separated from him, but I can't keep him here under these circumstances. Verse 13, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be of compulsion, but must be of your own accord. Paul writes that ultimately what he wants is for Onesimus to stay with him there in Rome. It's a a mutually beneficial relationship. He's discipling Onesimus. Onesimus is helping him in his imprisonment as an older man. Onesimus can come and go. So it's a very useful relationship. He says, I'd love to keep him here, but I can't under these circumstances. Not with a fractured relationship between Onesimus and Philemon. So here's what happens. If Paul doesn't send him back, he takes away the choice that Philemon has, and he takes away the opportunity for there to be reconciliation. In the letter that Paul wrote to the Colossian church that's being circulated throughout the Colossian churches, that in fact Philemon's church would have heard as well, Paul talks about Jesus has accomplished reconciliation for us. That reconciliation is between man and God, but also between man and people. And Paul knows that for the gospel to really be lived out for both of them, that there has to be an opportunity for reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus. So he says, I'm not just going to keep him here. By sending Onesimus back, he's discipling them both, giving them the opportunity to make their faith more effective. Verse 15. For this perhaps is why he was separated from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you? both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul's suggesting to Philemon that it's time to reframe the way that he relates to Onesimus. Not just as, as one of his household servants, but now as a brother in Christ. He says the relationship in the human economy, this master-slave relationship, that's temporary. That's just, that's the Greco-Roman economy and the way the culture did things. But he says, the deeper reality is he's a brother in Christ. You are, you're brothers in a a spiritual family with one heavenly father, and your equals. Paul's hinting that there might be a divine work at hand, or a hand at work behind the scenes of how this all came about. We talked about how God can strike a straight blow with a crooked stick. He says maybe this is why he was separated from you, so that he could become a forever brother and not just a, a household servant. We're going to pause there just to address a few questions because this this book and this topic up to here. It raises some questions. It, it probably does for you. I know it does for me. And, and there's people who have, have kind of peppered this text with questions. Questions like, uh, is Paul pro-slavery? Why, I mean, why is he sending a slave who just escaped an unjust situation back into it? Especially knowing that he could be punished severely. Why isn't he condemning the whole institution? Why isn't he demanding that Philemon not only free Onesimus, but all of his household slaves? Why did, Philemon, as, uh, why did Philemon, who is now a follower of Jesus, even have slaves still? Like, there's a lot of questions that we could ask. I'm sure there's some that, that you're thinking of as well. So, we're going to take a moment just to consider slavery and, and this bondservant concept in its original context. We have to kind of set aside our own uh, understanding of slavery in terms of a, an American, African, European context that's more recent. Because it, was, it looked a little different in their days. So, let me just give you a few details on that. Slavery in the first century Greco-Roman world. Uh, slavery was a, a socioeconomic fact of ancient life. Uh, historians estimate that slaves made up from between one-third to one-half of the population in Roman cities. Slavery was based on power and on wealth, not on race or gender. Pastor Mike put it this way He's in the, our devotions last week. He said, those who had power and status and money were equal opportunity enslavers," <laughs> Which means it wasn't based on trying to enslave another race or nationality or gender. It was about power and money and those who were powerless and poor, okay. Additionally, slaves in the Roman Empire competed with free, present, free presents, peasants for the same work, but generally with better opportunity. So, For this reason, some peasants actually sold themselves into becoming household slaves because there was more stability there and more opportunity. Because uh, household servants could actually save uh, money from, from what they made and actually purchase their freedom at some point and become freedmen. But here's the deal, and here's the bigger issue that raises the question here, and the reason why Paul is so deliberate in the letter that he sends Onesimus with. The penalty for captured runaway slaves in the Roman Empire was left to their master's discretion, including execution, in order to make a point to the other household slaves. So this is not a small thing. Like literally, Onesimus is a fugitive. Literally, he's going back to face the music of what he put in motion when he left. If Paul orders Philemon to, uh, to set Onesimus free, oh, sorry. Having said all of that, let me just say this very clearly. There is no justification, not biblically, not in any biblical text, There's no justification for any human system or practice that uses another person or people as property and exploits them for personal gain. People have twisted Scripture to try and uh, confirm that. It's It's an abuse of Scripture. Scripture never shows that. Instead, what Scripture proclaims over and over is that God created every person with intrinsic and equal value as image bearers of our Creator. Here's the thing, though. The reality of living in a fallen world is that in every time and every place throughout history, there are systems that exploit some people for the gratification of others. There's always a power struggle. There's always somebody who's on top and somebody who's on bottom. So how does the gospel address that wrong? And here's where we come back to Paul's desire to see Philemon change his mind by appeal and not by command. Because if he orders Philemon to set Onesimus free, he'll effect change for this one situation of slavery. But if Philemon begins to have a heart change and those in the church who watch this play out have the same heart change, this can have ripples that can reach to the end of the empire, right? It's about being effective, not about being efficient. So we get back to the text. We realize that Paul is subtly asking Philemon for something that's completely unprecedented. He's not writing and he's not saying, please show mercy on him when you punish him. He's not saying, please uh, grant clemency and and, and just absolve him of what he's done. We'll see, see that he actually did something in a moment. What he's asking actually for is the same hospitality that Philemon and his church are so well known for. He's saying, would you extend that to your runaway servant? Welcome him back. And the whole household hears this instruction and watches how it plays out. Verse 17, so... If you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, I write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me your own self. He reminds him, you got saved under my leadership as well, right? To say nothing of you owing me your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Don't you love that? You see that progression? The hearts of the saints are refreshed by you. I'm sending you my heart. Refresh my heart. He's not leaving a lot of, uh, he, he's, he's leaving a lot of room for, for how Philemon walks us out, but he's saying very clearly, I want you to reframe this relationship and I want you to show him radical hospitality and forgiveness. Again, Paul's discipling both of these men. What we see is that Onesimus stole something, we don't know the details, but he stole something from Philemon when he ran away, likely to, uh, you know, to pay for his, his trip to Rome, to, uh, to, to pay for his new life in Rome. He has wronged Philemon in some way. And so even though the institution of slavery isn't right, neither is theft. And in Paul's discipleship of, of Onesimus, he's helping him see, like, look, the institution may not be right, but that doesn't mean you should do something wrong what we do in just systems and unjust systems is about our integrity, our character, and the way we reflect the image of Jesus. So Paul's saying to Onesimus, we can hear the conversation as he's sending him, Onesimus, you need to go back. You need to make that right. Because God is not a thief. God is is honest, God is pure. And God doesn't doesn't address wrongs through more wrongs. And so your part in this is to go back and to ask forgiveness. He's also creating the opportunity for Philemon to ask for forgiveness. The gospel is about reconciliation with God through Jesus and it's about reconciliation with others. Verse 21, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing you'll do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. I love that. Treat him as you would treat me. And what I would like is a guest room. So, you know, spare bedroom, maybe go put some flowers on the table, some chocolates on the pillow. Welcome back Onesimus into your household, into your family. I don't know if he was saying that as a suggestion or to create a little bit of accountability, maybe both. Like if he really does arrive, he'll see what happens. Final, final line, verse 23. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends greetings to you. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is God's word. The, the theme in Philemon is Christians being encouraged by fellow Christians to make their faith effective. And specifically, we're gonna be talking about application over the next few weeks of this but specifically, what we're talking about today is, is when Paul sends Onesimus back. From Onesimus' perspective, he's saying, look, the gospel means that sometimes we have to make right or wrong. Sometimes that involves wrongs of our past, and God brings those to the surface. This is even, this is pre-Christian Onesimus. And Paul says, you still need to make it right. Reconciliation with God means recon- seeking reconciliation to the degree that you can with people that you've wronged. And so... This is your opportunity. He sends him on a journey of repentance and reconciliation. It also, of course, it means keeping short accounts for the wrongs we commit, because even as Christians, we regularly wrong one another, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes intentionally. But when we discover that, there's a chance for repentance. What I want to do as we close today is I just want to invite us to think about and ask the Holy Spirit, are there things that you would like to speak to my heart. Again, the, the, one of the facets of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit softens hearts and brings conviction and helps us to be want to be more like Jesus. And so I'm just, let's just do this. Let's, let's stand if you're able to stand. And let's just put ourselves in a posture of openness, whatever that looks like for you. For me, openness has a physical posture. It's saying, Jesus, I, I want to hear from you. And, and let's just wait on the Lord and say, Jesus, would you show me? Here's some things that I've been praying through and getting ready for this week and, and sensing that God might want to bring heart conviction to you. Is there maybe people in your past, maybe even prior to your becoming a follower of Jesus, that you've wronged? And as we talk about this today, there, that stories kind of bubbling up and you're remembering things that you've done. There's an invitation. Is is there a way to make a journey of repentance today? Maybe it's writing a letter. Maybe it's reaching out. I've I've had to do this throughout my Christian life. Uh, I wasn't the nicest person prior to meeting Jesus. I'm still not. But I've had to write some letters of reconciliation. I've had to reach out to people that I wronged, especially in my teen years. Um, I've had to, to write letters for people I harmed for wrongs I committed, to apologize to the people that affected. God might be stirring something from your distant past. He might stir something from your recent past. Maybe a, a, an argument that happened with your family or, or a loved one or a friend. And what we tend to do is we tend to justify our bad behavior by the fact that, well, they did this, and that's why I did that. And see, Paul doesn't leave room for justification by what Philemon's part was. He simply sends Onesimus back to make right his part. The journey that he sends him on is a journey that allows Christ to be formed in Onesimus. Because Onesimus, the whole journey he's realizing Jesus, you want me to be a, a person of integrity, of truthfulness, to not dishonor people through through theft or through stealing. You may find something bubbling up where, where you've, you've justified something you did that you, you knew was wrong. You wouldn't want somebody to do that to you, but you justified it because of someone else's behavior. And God might bring conviction to that today. Sometimes we 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 do that in our world we we treat the government. We do we, we cheat the government or we rob from our employer. We may not use that language. We justify it because, well the government's evil and they've got they take all my money anyway or employers. We sometimes we we, we treat corporations like it's okay to, to steal from them because they're big bad corporations. This is about our character, the way that we reflect Jesus in our world. And, and having to make that right is actually the place where Christ is formed in us, where we can achieve reconciliation with someone. Two other things that I've just been praying about this week. One is that um, I've noticed a trend in our world to, um, for Christians to speak in ways that are very un-Jesus-like about other people groups, other political groups, other uh, you know, people groups, people that believe differently, think differently, value different things, and in a sense justify it because, well, what they believe is not the way I think God thinks about things. But then when we speak in ways that assassinate people's character and we talk about them in ways that are degrading, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus loves all people. So that might be a place of repentance today. And lastly, I think there might be somebody who's coming back to Jesus. That you've, you've been on a journey where you've been running uh, and now there's an invitation that's awakening you to return to Jesus, to give him your heart and your future and to say, I'm drawing a line and today I choose to serve you. Paul started this letter and ended it. The book ends of this letter is the word grace. And grace is unearned forgiveness, unearned love. It's also an empowerment. Through God's grace, he empowers us to live the life he's calling us to. So some of you are sensing things that you're supposed to act on this week. There's some sort of action, a journey of repentance that you need to make this week. And there's grace for that. There's grace to give you the courage to act on the thing that's stirring in you right now. And so here's what I wanna close is for a ministry time today. I'm not gonna ask you to come up front for ministry. I just wanna invite you, if, if you're sensing something today that you feel like you're supposed to act on, would you just raise your hand where you are? And we're just going to ask the people around you to put their hands on your shoulder and say, would you empower this person with grace? If you want to share with them the thing that you're sensing you need to make right or change, you're welcome to do that. But there's no expectation. But what we're going to do is just going to, we're going to go ahead and put your hand back up and keep it up for just a moment. And if you're near someone with their hand up, would you just put your hand on their shoulder? And we're just gonna pray, and I pray for an empowering of grace. So Holy Spirit, we want to see our faith made more effective. Regardless of how long we've been a follower of you or or whether we're just beginning to follow you, we hear your invitation, and what we ask for is changed hearts. To love what you love, to grieve what you grieve, and to take the reconciliation that you have won for us on the cross and to extend it in our human relationships, in our human economy. That our lives would be a place of transformation, a, a countercultural place where we don't just do things the way the world's doing them, but we stand apart as salt and light, bearing your image faithfully. And so, Lord, for those who are sensing that invitation today, would you give them the grace this week to act on the thing that you're stirring in them? We ask for the empowering grace and the courage to step out and to see what you might do. We ask that these acts of obedience would result in ripples that would affect families and our church and our city and our world. God, would you do something today in us that would bring us closer to you, that would help us to more clearly carry your image in our time. Lord, for those who haven't sensed anything specifically, we give you our, our week, and we ask that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to see our lives as you see them. Open our eyes to blind spots of places that we've forgotten or things that we've uh, dismissed or, or justified. Would you help us to, uh, to walk in repentance and reconciliation, to ask for forgiveness without, a, without making excuses, and to be formed to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, our prayer team sensed some, uh, some words for prayer this morning. These are, I think most of them have to do with healing. So these are specific things that our prayer team sensed for this morning about addictive behavior, uh, fluid around the heart and or in the lungs. Also, severe pain in the head, severe pain in the shoulders, and dealing with a giant in your life. Uh, these are all specific things our prayer team sensed this morning. There may be others. But if you would like prayer this morning, we're just gonna have a kind of a soft close and allow people, uh, you go pick up your kids and and get on with your plans for the day. But if you'd like prayer, we'd love to serve you and partner with you in that way and pray with you. So we're just gonna do that up front. Um, Apart from that, we do have signups for all of our classes happening out in the hall today underneath the screens. And, And next week, we'll have a meet and greet. So apart from that, please go make the invisible God visible. Thanks for listening. To respond or receive prayer after the live stream closes, please email prayer at vineyardboise.org and if possible, include your phone number. We'd love to get in touch with you. Thanks.